Welcome to Spark Creators, a podcast that empowers kids to learn, create, and become. This podcast invites creators and entrepreneurs from all over to share their stories and ideas. We believe every kid is creative. It's just a matter of taking that first step and starting now. We hope this podcast can inspire you to create something that makes a difference in the world. If you want to stay inspired, remember to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or visit us at peachandplumlab.com slash podcast. Welcome to Spark. I'm the host, Lee. I'm the co-host, Jennifer. It is great to have Ria Caropano to join us today. Ria is currently a candidate, a PhD candidate in behavior marketing at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Ria originally came from Brooklyn, New York, but before attending Stanford, she actually taught English and debate classes in Seoul, uh, South Korea. So before that, she received a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology um, from Yale University. So Ria, from East Coast to Asia and now on the West Coast, could you give us some background of like where you grew up, what kind of kid you were, what kind of family you had? Yeah, um, so yeah, like you mentioned, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, My parents got divorced when I was pretty young, so I was raised mostly by my dad and by my grandma. Um, And the two of them were always really supportive for me, so they were very much the type of people to say that I could do whatever I put my mind to and be really encouraging of whatever I was interested in. Um, And they also really both valued learning, Um, so they always bought me workbooks um, that were either things I was doing in school or in some cases things that were a little bit more advanced than school, but they'd give me these workbooks and it'd be a fun activity to do. Um, They would give me little prizes or certificates when I finished them. So it never really felt like they were making me do anything. It seemed like learning and workbooks and stuff, which is a fun activity to do. Um, So I think that was really nice and really inspired me to think learning was fun. Um, And also they always tried to look for opportunities for me. So they looked for like summer programs and places where you could learn and hang out with other kids. And I think that was also really influential that they were always on the lookout for opportunities that would be good for me. That's really nice, yeah. So they give you so many opportunities, but do you think they have expectations for you at some point? Um, so I think that actually, no. I think they always expected that they wanted me to go to college. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, so they were both really excited about that possibility, and it was sort of, it was a hope that everyone had. But I think on the other hand, um, you know, a lot of people in my family haven't gone to college, so because of that, I think that there was never a lot of pressure necessarily where they realized that sometimes life gets in the way of the things that you think you want to do. Um, But they were really hopeful about that. And definitely everyone was really proud and excited um, when I was able to go to college and now being able to do a PhD. Um, But yeah, they've been really good about not putting too much pressure on me ever, I think. Wow, that's really amazing. You are the first to go to college. Yeah, they, they must be really, really proud of you. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Ria, since our main audience are kids and parents, and you're also in the academic field, um, we would love to learn about your growth journey in school. So what was your interest when you were a child, and has that ever changed? Um, and why do you choose this very specific field to study, right? Yeah, um, so my interests have definitely changed a lot over time. So at one point, I wanted to be an artist, but that was when I was really young. Um, And then after that, my parents took me to see Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. 
and I thought it was the best thing ever. So I decided that I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to be a singer for a little while. Um, I was never a very good actress or a very good singer, but I was really excited about it. So I thought maybe that's what I wanted to be. Um, then in high school, I decided that maybe I didn't want to be in plays, but I sort of wanted to perform and be in front of people. So maybe I'd be a lawyer and do that in court. Um, and then when I went to college, I did things like that with like Yale's mock trial team and sort of learned more about law. Um, and then also in college, I took my first psychology class, um, mostly because my friends were taking psychology and I thought that it'd be, you know, a fun thing to do with all of my friends. Um, and found that it was something that I re also really enjoyed and felt sort of came naturally to me. Um, and then ended up deciding to work on a psychology degree. Um, but even after that, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do psychology or law or something totally different. Um, so that's sort of why I decided to go to Korea was because after college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It felt like I had a lot of options, but not knowing what I wanted to do just took a little bit of time off in Korea. So there I was teaching English. Um, and also decided to volunteer at a psychology lab in Korea. And at that psychology lab, um, I found that it was something I always looked forward to, that it wasn't my job, I wasn't obligated to do it, but I was always really excited to go and talk about research and sort of learn more. Um, and that's something that motivated me to decide that I did want to apply to grad school because it was something that I was excited about and had fun with, um, but also something that I felt that I was really good at which also sort of reinforced like how exciting and fun it was. Um, it never made it feel like it was a lot of work um, because it was something that I liked a lot. So that's sort of how I ended up in psychology. In terms of the things I research, I research a handful of different things, but something I always try to do is make sure that the things that I'm researching are things that would matter to my family, where I can go home and I can talk to them about what I'm doing and it's not some weird academic topic that no one knows anything about. You know, I can talk, I research happiness stuff, I research persuasion, and all of those are things that I can go home and talk to my grandma about, and she understands why these things would be important. And I think it's important to me to make sure that I stay grounded in terms of the things that I'm researching. The things that you research are really interesting to me, um, but I know this is a really broad and, like, big question, but you've achieved so much in, like, academics, and, like, being a teenager, it just, like, it... It's so amazing to me that you went to Stanford and Yale. And so I wanted to ask, did you always want to go there? Like, did you think about these things when you were in high school like me? Um, and do you have any, like, suggestions for kids like me who want to accomplish what you have academically? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I was in high school, I definitely wanted to go to college. Um, but Yale was honestly not really on my radar. Um, I sort of, you know, I thought I'd go to a college and Yale felt like a long shot. Um, I think my best advice is to do things that are, you're legitimately excited about rather than things that you think will look good on an application. And that's always what I did in terms of like I was on the fencing team and like did science Olympiad, but I chose things that were exciting to me. My school also had like a math team and I didn't like math, so I didn't join the math team, even though like maybe schools would have liked that or like, you know, I like can't play any musical instruments. It's not something I'm good at. Like maybe that would have looked good, but it's just not something that came naturally to me. So I've always sort of focused on the things that I've been genuinely excited about um, and gotten really good at the things that I like. If I start good at something, I try to really build on that and become, you know, great at it if I can. Um, and yeah, focusing on the things that I'm excited about and good at rather than things that I think that someone else wants me to do, I think has been really motivating um, because I think obviously it's much easier to do good work when you care about what you're doing versus when you're doing it because your parents want you to or doing it because you think it'll 
look good for schools. Um, so I think that's been really helpful for me. Great. So it's really great to know your background and thank you for those insights. And we all know that getting a PhD is definitely not easy. Um, not mentioning you have a lot of like papers you want to write on a daily basis. So could you tell us what, a, what an average day is as a PhD student at Stanford Graduate School of Business? Yeah. Um, so in my first couple of years, it was really about learning. So I took a lot of classes. I read a lot of papers. Um, I met with people to sort of gain insights from them on what had already been done in the field. Um, but now that I'm in my fourth year, it shifted a lot away from learning about what other people have already researched and instead learning new knowledge that no one has researched before and sort of building on what's already been done. Um, so now what I do is a lot of discussing new ideas with other with faculty or with other students. Um, I also spend a lot of time like running experiments online where we manipulate slight things to see the impacts on things like well-being or persuasion. Um, and then we do the data analysis from there. We write up papers, submit them, um, and then go through a review process um, and sort of then go back to the beginning on the next project and again sort of run experiments and write papers, etc. Um, so yeah, I now that I've been here for a while, it's a lot less reading other people's work and a lot more trying to figure out how to contribute to the field. Great, Ria. Uh, so today our topic is happy moments that last. Um, you have several research paper papers. You know you wrote uh, focused on studying happiness in relation to meanings, experiences, and decision making. So tell us more about that. I wanted to give you enough time, you know, to share all your research and experiments and findings. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of past research on the idea that happiness is really difficult to sustain. Um, so you buy a new phone and it's so exciting at first for the first few weeks and you're playing with it. You're like, this is the best phone ever. And then, you know, a month goes by, two months go by, and eventually you get sort of bored with your phone. And like, you know, you still spent a lot of money on the phone, but now it's not exciting anymore. It doesn't bring you happiness. Um, and that happens with most things in our lives. So something I'm really interested in is how do you get that happiness to continue even though you know we get bored of things over time. Um, so in my own research, one way that I look at this, like you mentioned, is through meaning. Um, so meaning, there's a lot of different ways to get meaning, um, but some of the ways are things like social relationships, things that bring you personal growth, um, and also things that are pro-social and help other people. Um, so I think that even though like kids don't necessarily think about things in terms of like, oh, is this pro-social, is this meaningful? Um, I think from like every age, pretty much, you know, people, you know, have social interactions that are important for them. And, you know, sometimes people will be like nice to other people. So like, and this applies to like both kids and to adults in terms of meaning being something that brings people happiness. Um, and also in my research brings more sustained happiness. Um, so one thing that we do in one of our studies is that we tell people to go on Facebook um, and we, there are two groups of people. One group, we just tell them, do fun, happy things on Facebook. So those people go and they watch silly videos and they tell us how happy they are watching these silly videos. And then we tell another group of people to go on Facebook also, but instead to spend that time in ways they think are meaningful and to try to connect to other people. And instead, those people send messages to their friends and they still like they enjoy themselves and they're not doing anything that's too difficult, but um, it is a more meaningful experience, obviously connecting to other people versus watching silly videos. Um, and then we talk to them a week later and we say, all right, remember when you came and went on Facebook, um, how happy are you right now when you think about that? 
And for people who watch silly videos, it's happy while it's happening, but it's not happy anymore when you think about it later because you don't really get anything from that. Versus for the meaningful experiences, those are still happy later. That's still important to you, like that connection that you made with your friend or another person. Um, so yeah, I guess my first insight is that meaningful things are generally going to last longer in terms of happiness, and that can be gotten in a lot of different ways, whether it's being kind to others or connection or personal growth. Um, so that's one way to um, have more sustained happiness. Um, another piece of research in my field that I really like is about material versus experiential possessions. Um, so obviously like when you're spending money on something, you can buy something and like keep that things like a phone for a long time, or you can spend that money on an experience, which only happens once and then it's gone. Um, and some people might think that experiences, maybe they don't last as long in terms of happiness because you have the experience and then it's over. Um, but actually there's a lot of research that says that um, experiences are better than material things for happiness um, because you have that experience and then afterwards, every time you think about that experience, it continues to make you happy. It never, you never say, man, remember that vacation that I went on five years ago? Now it doesn't make me happy anymore. You don't get bored of that. Um, you continue to get happiness from that pretty much for as long as you remember the experience versus, you know, a phone, a few years later, you're not going to get happiness from your old phone. Um, and it's the same thing with clothes or like lots of material possessions where people get bored of them um, and you don't continue to get happiness from them anymore. Um, and then one last tip is um, this idea of pro-social behavior. Um, so there's a study that I really like um, where they ask people, um, they say, I'm going to give you $5. Do you want to spend it on yourself or on someone else? And of course, everyone says, I want to spend it on myself. Like who, who says, oh, I want to spend it on my friends? That's not how anyone responds. Um, so yeah, they have those people and they have a different group of people who they don't let them make a decision. They say, here's $5 and they either tell them spend it on yourself or spend it on someone else. Um, and they say, you can spend it however you want, buy your friend a snack, buy a stranger something, whatever you want to do, just spend it on someone who's not yourself. Um, and then at the end of the day, they call all of those people and ask them how happy they are. And the people who spent the money on someone else are happier than the people who spent the money on themselves. Um, and this has been similar to the material and experiential thing where, you know, things that you buy for yourself, you get tired of them pretty quickly versus when you buy something for someone else, that sense of connection with another person and feeling good about having done that, that's much more enduring. Um, so yeah, that last piece, the last piece of advice would be to spend money or sp do things for other people. It doesn't always have to be money. It can be just like spending time on someone else rather than always focusing on yourself um, can actually be a good way not just to help other people, but to help your own well-being and your own happiness. So I like that. So as a teenager myself, I am pretty involved on social media, as I think most teenagers are. Uh, so I'm really interested to ask, what effects does social media have on our well-being and happiness? Yeah, that's a great question that people have been researching a lot recently. Um, and I think that, like many other things, social media isn't good or bad. It's a matter of how you're using it. Um, so there's one set of research that shows that if you're on your phone when you're walking around campus rather than interacting with people, that makes people less happy. So they have a bunch of college kids and they tell them, go from this building to this other building. Um, and some people get to use their phone, some people don't. And the people who don't use their phone 
are much happier because they're interacting with other people along the way and sort of forming social connections. Um, so the first thing I'd say is that when, uh, when social media is getting in the way of real connections, when it's sort of just a distraction that you're doing on the side but not really engaging with people, I think that can be bad. Um, another thing that can be bad with social media is social comparisons. So obviously everyone puts up the best version of their life on social media um, and then people compare themselves to that and no one's life is as good as the pictures in social media and obviously these negative comparisons have a negative impact on well-being. Um, but even though those things are both bad, I think on the flip side, social media can be really good for connecting with other people um, and staying in contact with friends even when you're not in the same place. And I think when it's used in that way, social media can be really positive for well-being, but it's important to use it very intentionally and deliberately rather than mindlessly. Because I think it's sort of like what I mentioned with the Facebook study, where if you if you just wander around looking at silly animal pictures, that feels good in the moment, but that's not going to feel good in the future versus connecting to other people is always going to improve your well-being. Yeah, I've heard something similar saying that um, technology, you know, if you use it as a tool, it can enhance your life and make everything better. But if you actually, you know, being driven by this tool, like where get affected with this tool, you know, into your life and everything else, then you are actually a slave of the tool, not really, yeah. you know, like the owner of the tool. So it's it's really interesting, like how you say the real life connection and interaction actually adds so much more meaning than just browsing around the social media. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so uh, as you also mentioned that something related to you wanted to be stay grounded, you know, so you wanted to talk about your research to your grandmom and uh, are there any like stories behind that? Um, why do you choose this very specific area to um, study in behavior marketing and what sparked your interest um, Yeah, in the very beginning? Yeah, so in terms of happiness research, I think in some ways it is something that I stumbled into. So um, while I was in Korea, I was talking to um, some of the researchers there who were interested in sort of this idea that all happiness is not the same. So the happiness that I get from looking at silly videos is not the same happiness that I get when I'm you know, having a really important conversation with someone. And in my own experience in college, I remember, you know, there were lots of times that we like had really fun nights, but that weren't really important. But there were other times where we just sat around, you know, eating popcorn in someone's room and just talking all night and that those were really the nights that I remembered and that were really important. Um, so I wanted to think more about sort of this distinction of, you know, these things that are both happy, but some things are happy in this deep way and some things are happy in a much more shallow way. Um, and started looking into the research on meaning for that. Um, and it really clicked for me that it is the difference between these two is very much so how meaningful they are. Um, so I think as a result of sort of that observation in my own life and talking to people who are doing research in that area, that's what got me interested in thinking more about meaning um, and what exactly it means to look for meaning and how this can improve people's lives when they focus on meaning instead of just feeling good all the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So... Um, happiness is a feeling that we can all feel, but I think it's hard to like articulate it and to measure. So besides asking someone, how happy do you feel? Are there any like scientific ways to measure it? So this is something that people in the field talk about a fair bit. Um, people think about things like doing brain scans, but the problem is obviously for brain scans, it's hard to interpret those. So we can say this area lit up, but 
what exactly does that mean, we're still not really sure. Um, so in general, we do rely on these self-report measures, though often we'll ask a bunch of questions rather than just one to sort of triangulate the answer. Um, and with the reason why we focus on these self-reports is sort of because no one, no one else can know how happy something is. So you can imagine like two people can have the exact same experience. Um, and for one of them, it reminds them of this moment in their childhood. And it's really important, really happy for them. And for the other one, it's just mundane and not really important and not really happy and just doesn't matter. Um, so that's why we usually try to just ask people how they're feeling, um, because it's so hard as an external observer to really get information about whether someone's actually happy. And we have to believe that if someone says they're happy, then that they like they know what happiness means for them and they know what it's like to be extremely happy and what it's like to be sad and can sort of figure out for them how they feel in that moment. So, because um, I read your paper a little bit, yeah, in the beginning of your research paper called uh, Moments at Last, you asked a question that made us all think, um, you can spend time with your family or your friends, or you can spend the time alone, just chilling out and, you know, um, by yourself and relax. Um, how should you make this decision to maximize your own happiness? You ask that question. Now, hearing what you have said, does that mean despite which options you take, as long as there are more meaning added to one option, then that one would be a better decision? Yeah, so I think in a lot of cases, if the goal is to maximize long-term happiness, definitely the meaningful option is the one that's going to maximize long-term happiness. Um, I don't think that means that a person should always make meaningful decisions every single moment of their day. Um, you know, you can imagine just deciding, well, I guess the most meaningful thing to do would be personal growth. So maybe I'll just work. And then, you, you know, in an hour, maybe the most meaningful thing is still to, you know, personal growth. So I'll just work again. And you can imagine just having all of your time be filled up with um, meaningful activities and not necessarily having a lot of joy. Um, so I'd say there is a balance to be had of you need to make sure that you're making meaningful decisions some of the time. Um, but I think it is common that people make almost exclusively happiness decisions and sort of do what feels good in the short term and don't always think about the long term. Um, so I think it's important to sometimes maximize for meaning. Um, but there's also research that shows that having a variety of emotions is also really good for well-being. So a person shouldn't focus only on social connections or only on happiness or only meaning, but rather sort of having a full life of all different emotions um, and having variety is really good for well-being. So it's all about balance because if you get one thing too much and it's to an extreme, then it's not really like a full life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So also in your paper, you mentioned that Although parents are less happy than the non-parent counterparts, people continue to have children and express that these children bring them joy. So I think this is true for parents, but um, what about kids? So a lot of kids yeah. probably don't understand how to play meaning because it's not like something they think about, but they still appear to be the happiest like people in the world. So does age difference affect anything when it comes to applying meaning to happiness? That's a great question. You two should be researchers of this area because that's a thing that we're actually researching now. Um, so something we're interested in is when are happiness and meaning connected to each other versus when are they sort of separate? Um, and what we find is that for regardless of age, um, happiness and meaning are generally connected. You know, when you do things that are meaningful, it does bring you happiness. But actually, it is true that as people get older, happiness and meaning become more connected, whereas when you're younger, they are more separate. Um, so yeah, there's lots of instances where kids get happiness, 
but not really meaning. And like that's that happiness is also great. And I think for in a lot of cases, um, depending on kids and like their age, in a lot of cases, it's okay to not have long term happiness, and it's okay to just like enjoy the moment right then. Um, that said, I think meaning is also relevant for kids of all different ages um, in terms of things like prosocial behavior. So there's research showing that even really, really little kids, um, if they see that someone has dropped something and that they can reach it, but the person can't, really little kids will still reach and grab something and hand it to someone to help them um, and show sort of some happiness at like doing this nice, helpful thing. Um, so it does seem like regardless of age, like things like connecting to other people are always going to be relevant, but the two definitely do start to be more intertwined the older people get, where like for you know people who are really old, it's hard to derive happiness in a lot of cases for things that are not meaningful at all, versus for kids, definitely that's more separable and you can have one or the other. And I think it's important to just make sure you have both. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to ask another thing on top of that is, what about like happiness that, animals feel like do you guys have any like discussions related to that you know because animals cannot sometimes communicate you know with humans or it's hard to express in certain way understand meaning but I do think like sometimes they feel meaning in a really purely way yeah yeah I think it's really hard in terms of meaning with animals because meaning is such a difficult construct in some ways that it's hard to know when someone can't communicate with you what meaning means um Definitely in terms of like happiness, there's lots of research on like things that animals do to improve their own well-being and that like make them sort of better off. Um, so I think it seems like there's something like happiness, at least for animals, but it's so, so hard to tap into what it would mean for something to be meaningful. You know, obviously like parent, like lots of animals, parents take care of their children and that's meaningful for us as humans, but it's sort of impossible, at least right now with the tools we have to tap into whether that's meaningful for them or whether it's just instinct or whether it's something that's like happiness. Um, and yeah, maybe tools in the future will be better at being able to identify those things. Great. So a couple of weeks ago, my coworker and I, we were talking about the tooth fairy from the U.S. culture. Uh, actually, it, it was originated from the Europe um, and the tooth fairy usually involves parents giving money to their kid when the child loses a teeth. So I don't even remember the first time when I lost my baby tooth. But for those co co-workers who, whose parents give them money when, you know, like as applied as the tooth fairy does, they still remember the excitement and fun memory uh, they had. Uh, so losing teeth itself isn't a fun or memorable thing or happy thing to kid, but seems like traditions like Tooth Fairy add a lot of meanings to this experience. Um, my question is, could we add meaning to negative experience and even turn that into something fun or lasting longer? Yeah, definitely. I think it does depend how negative an experience is, whether we can make it sort of something positive. So I think in the case of the Tooth Fairy, you know, losing a tooth is a little negative. So then if we add something that's positive, like getting some money um, and also meaning, then we can tip the scales over to positive. Um, but even for things that are like much worse than that, you know, if you like break a bone, but then you think of it as being an important experience that you've learned from and like now you've improved as a person, um, then absolutely that's going to help people deal with negative experiences. Um, once you can figure out sort of how does it fit into the bigger picture, what am I learning from this, 
Um, and even if it doesn't become positive in the end, it does make it much less negative to be able to find um, meaning in things and figure out how you can leverage that to either grow as a person or to connect with other people around you. Yeah, because in one of your paper, you also mentioned something related to like how low income pers- like families can find meaning or through different experiences. Yeah, like what was your like final findings for on that um, area? Yeah. yeah, for that project. Um, yeah, what we find is that um, for higher income people, happiness and meaning often move separately, sort of the way I mentioned for kids, where, you know, if you can afford to buy a yacht, maybe you get your happiness from your yacht and your meaning from your job. You know, those are very separate. Um, Versus uh, for lower income individuals who have less access to resources, it's really common for happiness and meaning to become more intertwined. So you can imagine if you don't have a lot of money to do a lot of things, you're going to get your happiness and your meaning from your close relationships. So that what's going to be important is finding people who you care about, your relationship with your family, things like religion, and those things are going to bring people both happiness and meaning. So yeah, when resources are constrained, I think people are actually really adaptive and good at finding ways that things that will bring them both happiness and meaning. And that's what we see lower income individuals doing, whereas higher income individuals actually are doing a worse job. They're, you know, getting happiness and meaning from totally different places. Um, so yeah, I think that there, yeah, there's, it's interesting how there are differences in the ways that people derive these based on their circumstances. Yeah, so thank you, Rhea, for sharing with us the happy moments at last. So people seem happier when they give and when they connect with other people, for example, like even at charities. Um, yeah. but, you, you mentioned yeah. that when you were, yeah, in the very beginning too, like people feel mm-hmm. happy if they buy something for others right. instead of for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, what's the reason for that? And is that the same for like introverts and extroverts? Yeah, so I think that probably for introverts versus extroverts, it is a matter of how you are pro-social, right? So you can imagine that for an extrovert, you want to be pro-social in ways that have a lot of face-to-face contact and a lot involve a lot of interaction, versus for an introvert, it may be easier to do something that's less contact, but still positive for another person. And I think regardless of whether you're introverted or extroverted, probably you're going to get happiness from doing these meaningful activities like pro-social behavior, but it's a matter of doing it in ways that are comfortable to you and that are not going to bring sort of negative experience with that. Um, In terms of why that happens, I think that's something that researchers are still thinking about, but one reason is what they talk about is like warm glow. Um, So warm glow is just sort of that like when you do something good, like physiologically, you feel warm and fuzzy inside um, and that's sort of driving happiness but why exactly that warm glow happens i don't think we really know got it so ria um because our audience is indeed kids and parents and hearing your story growing up as a kid and uh, just being so inspiring i guess Mm -hmm. not only in your family but i think probably around people like people around you as well like we would love to hear some suggestions uh, that you have, you know, through your own experience, through what you have studied, and just anything that you have wanted to deliver to our audience, yeah. Yeah, um, so earlier I mentioned sort of seeking out opportunities, and I think that that's probably, like, the best thing that my parents did for me. Um, so one of the opportunities they found was a program that takes students from, like, low-income communities and helps them sort of, like, um, learn more in school and then helps them try to get into private schools. Um, and that's like that's something that as a kid I never would have looked at myself. But 
having like learned about the existence of that and them helping me with that program um, was really influential and really changed my life. Um, so yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities that if you don't look for them, you don't know that they exist. Um, one of my friends did a summer program on like financial aid where she also like took classes over the summer and like made a ton of like friends with kids who are other kids who are motivated. Um, and I think that things like that are super valuable. Um, and it's good to just like keep an eye out for those sorts of opportunities. Um, cause those, you never know which of those opportunities are going to be like life changing. So yeah, I think that's my best advice. Thank you, Ria, for sharing with us happy moments at last, how meaning can slow down the decay of one's happiness. We learned that having more interaction with people creates more sustained happiness an instant joy that only lasts so long. And we learned that we feel more happiness from past memories and material possessions. And lastly, we learned that when you give to others, you feel happier than when you use things for yourself. We are very happy to have you joining us today and thank you so much for sharing with us your journey as a PhD student at Stanford and all the research and experiments you have done on happiness and meaning. Thank you. Yeah, but knowing that meaning adds so much in our pursuit of happiness and fun memories, I hope we can all celebrate small moments in life with special meanings. Thank you, Ria, and thanks for everyone who is listening to Spark by Entrepreneur Kid, where all kids are empowered to learn, create, and become. I'm the host, Lee. I'm the co-host, Jennifer. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Spark Creators Podcast at peachandplumlab.com.